Well, you can take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. This morning, we're going to read our passage together, verses 1 through 11. And so in God's providence, uh, this is the second wedding that I get to preach to or preach about. Um, one Friday with uh, Garrett and Maddie. And this morning, we get to look at the wedding at Cana. And forgive me if I say Canaan. I don't know why, but you see Canaan so much. Land of Canaan. And I've been practicing Cana, Cana, Cana. Well, let's read together these first 11 verses of this first miracle, which of course we know is John's argument that he is going to make of all the signs. This is the first, which I think not only is important in its number, he wants to show you the first, but we're going to even see the nature of it has implications as well. So John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And now when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, but when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, we come during this time desiring that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds as we want to behold what is seen here, what the disciples beheld, the glory of Christ on display Lord, illuminate our hearts as we see all the different aspects of that glory and the unique way in which his ministry begins. And even something as common as a wedding, but also special, significant. And in this way, maybe we don't at first see what is all represented here, but we see so many truths about Christ and his future ministry as we we dig and we dive deeper into your word in the study this morning. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who have the entrepreneurial bug, you might have looked at trademarks or copyrights throughout the years. You have an idea or you have something published or you have a brand or a title that you want to copyright. And as you look into that, as I looked into this week, there are three requirements to get something copyrighted. Number one, it has to be something that is authored by you. You got to prove authorship. It must be your own work. So you got to say somehow you as an individual, this is something coming from you, you are the author. Secondly, not only do you have to be the author of it, or you have to say, this is what I've made, or this is what I've named something, or this is what I've created, but it has to be somewhat unique, not completely unique in the case of copyright law, but unique enough that it's clearly a distinct 
from other things. It's not a copy. You have to prove authorship, but you have to prove originality. And thirdly, and this term's a little bit fuzzy, you have to prove, prove fixation. And that simply means to refer to the requirement that an embodiment of work be set down or fixed in a tangible meaning medium of expression for a more than transitory period. That is to say, you have to actually get it out there and use it. Doesn't necessarily have to be published, but it has to be written down. It has to be in use for you to say, I want to copyright this thing. Prove authorship, prove originality, prove fixation. For those of you just in John chapter two, flip back to John chapter one in those first five verses. If you remember, he establishes very similar to Genesis chapter one, that in the beginning was the word and the word is going to be the logos, which of course is going to refer to Jesus. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. I will argue this morning as we look towards this miracle, which you might on its surface simply see something of, oh wow, he changed something, water, into wine, but it represents something far greater. And I titled it the creation copyright because I believe that is what he is doing in the sense of he is establishing his right as the creator even here. He's doing something. And of course, John, we know, is trying to prove that Jesus is the son of God. He's doing something that only the son of God can do. This isn't simple, as I don't think it'll take much to dive in and see why. But he is going to show that this is something that is truly unique and original to him, that only he can do. And it's going to get put down in history. And the Spirit is going to inspire one who I would think here that John is present as one of these early disciples and is going to get put out to say there's only one who has put his stamp on creation. Jesus is the Son of God. And he is the one by whom all things have been created. So let's dive into this study this morning. And we're going to encounter the very first sign in the gospel of John that are all going to point to the deity of Christ. Of course, not only that, but that the response should be to believe in Christ as the son of God. And we're going to see the beginning of that progression as we saw in reading there, verse 11, that they believe. And of course, they're not believing yet in the death and resurrection, but it's the beginning of their belief that will be built upon. But as we look at chapter 2, we're going to see that this sign, this very first sign shows Jesus is God through his power of creation and represents the beginning of a new era. For those theologians out there, this idea of a new dispensation, a new era of God's program and the necessary response to that is going to be belief. He's going to establish, he's going to demonstrate his power of creation, and he's going to also represent something here that it's about to change. We're going to see that even in his relationship to his mother, that's going to change as well. So let's dive into the, the story, and we're going to look at the story from three different angles, three different approaches of just asking some questions and observe the problem. And the problem is represented here in the first five verses. Look with me to verse one that gives a little bit of the background and then the problem to this. And the background is that on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And of course, that's important in context because he's gonna bring up this interaction between Jesus and his mother. They're there 
there's a little bit of a debate over the location, but all that I say is Jesus is from Gazareth, uh, Galilee. We're, we're in near Nazareth. This is close. They, they know these individuals. There might even be a relationship to these individuals or relation. And both Jesus and his disciples, that is everyone around that area, are going to the party. They're invited to the wedding. Now, before we look at what's the real problem at this wedding, their weddings are a little different than our weddings. And by that, I mean, we enjoy and celebrate weddings. But typically, you might be there for five, six plus hours. If you're part of the, you know, the, the wedding party or you're one of the bridesmaids, you might be getting there at 7 a.m. and you might be there till midnight. But still, it's usually contained to a single day. But for them, it would usually be contained to a much longer period of time, even over the course of a week. And although in our culture, very often, at least traditionally speaking, the bride is going to be on the hook or the bride's family is going to be on the hook for much of that wedding day, this was the responsibility, not of the groom's parents, which I have four boys, so I'd like this tradition to come back, but it's on the groom himself. And so the man, if you want to marry a woman, you show us that you can provide for us. So typically during the engagement period, he's going to go and he's going to build a home for her. He's going to save money. And when he's able to pay for this multiple days, and of course, we love to impress as human beings. And so if you want to show honor and that you can provide, what do you do? Well, if your friend has a four-day party, you have a seven-day party, right? It's a massive social gathering. And outside of really religious gatherings, this is the biggest social event of their day. You might have, let's say, if you're in uh, Corinth, the Corinthian games, which kind of looked a little bit like the Athen games, but there's really not a lot of entertainment. Days would go on the same outside of the Sabbath or outside of when they would go to uh, learn. You have festivals, but this would be something everyone would look forward to as this massive social event. They're all close. No technology that we have to connect one another. They're graphically close. They're relationally close. And this would be kind of a combination of, I would imagine, a class reunion and a family reunion kind of boiled in one. And I think of it as a class reunion in this way because my 20th class reunion for high school is coming up this spring. And all of a sudden you start thinking, I haven't seen these people in 20 years. And I want to be recognizable, right? And so you start going, I think I'll work out a little bit. At least that's my thought, somewhere in the future, be a little more fit, right? People look forward to this and want to impress and want to be ready and prepared in every single way. But also in the sense of family, that this is something that is a massive gathering of people and special. Because they would probably be either related or they would be some level of neighbors to many of these individuals. It isn't even not that long in American history where that would be true. In fact, for me, I dove into family history and on the Thiessen side, that's from this area, I found it fascinating that my great-great-grandpa and my great-great-grandmother were neighbors. One farm south of town, and if you know Cloisters on the Platte, that area that was built up this last couple years is where my great-great-grandmother's family farmed. And then his son, my great-grandpa, who grew up in Gretna, then married his neighbor. And so if you know Shram Park, that's where her family farmed. So why do they marry people so close? Well, who do you know, right? I mean, this is before automobiles and everything else. That's, you marry who you know. You could say my grandpa did it a little bit, you know, more adventurous because he was from South Bend and he married someone from Louisville. So, you know, we, we really get out there big time at night. We go back that far. But it is to say, and I want you to understand, 
when we get to why is it such a big deal that they ran out of wine? Why would this be in their idea in the culture a shameful thing? Because all of their closest friends and their closest family and something that this is the biggest event they've gathered for, it would be absolutely embarrassing and shameful and reflect so poorly on the family, which I'm gathering here, Mary knows. I'm sure Mary loves this family. There even could be some relation to this family. And she's gonna try to protect the groom and she's gonna look to the greatest problem solver there ever was and say, can you fix the problem? What is the problem? Verse three, the wine ran out. Well, we don't know what day the wine ran out, but it is to say they've been enjoying and they've been celebrating. And the main means of celebration is run out. And this would bring shame upon this family. And Mary understands it. And Mary's going, who can I look to? Who can solve this problem? I don't think at this point, some people write that the expectation of a miracle is probably here because he hasn't done any miracles. This is his first miracle. So I don't know if she'd expect that, but I would imagine Jesus is a pretty good problem solver. And she looks to him to say, I have a problem. And I'm sure she's used to looking to him and saying, what are we going to do? She doesn't really even ask a question, right? She simply makes a statement that there's no wine and she makes it to Jesus. And we're gonna see there's an expectation put on him. Tradition would have that Joseph, the last time we encounter him is when he is there, when Jesus goes to the temple as a young boy. And it's very likely that as she looks to him, not only is he not mentioned, um, she looks to him for authority here or the head of the household. Jesus is known not only as the son of a carpenter, but a carpenter himself. And then yet the cross three years from here, he entrusts his mother to the care of John. So it it's very likely that Joseph has died at this point, somewhere between that time of, we see him at the temple when Jesus is a young boy to this period. And so she's not looking to Joseph. She's looking to her oldest son, Jesus. The wine has run out. They have no more. And their response is shocking. And I think it's meant to be shocking. And of all the interactions, so this is when you get to scripture, John could record anything in the sense that of conversations going on, I'm sure there's stress, I'm sure there's worry. But I imagine Jesus' response to Mary shocked John when he heard it. And so he communicates it because he understood that this response had meaning to it. Because this isn't a normal response. And you can say, mother. And it's not that this is disrespectful because there's no sin in Jesus, but this is something that distanced himself distances himself from Mary. And so he says in verse four to Mary, woman, what do I have to do with you? Not in English, that might come across as a little more harsh than it was meant, but it is still not mother. It's still not endearing. Some have suggested this is a little closer to kind of an official thing, a distancing of saying, ma'am. But if you're from the South and you grew up in the South and you might've called you know, your mother, you might've said, yes, ma'am. So it's not quite even that. It's, it's really a distancing from her. And you wonder even why the distance? Because he knows he's gonna solve the problem, but he's saying something in this distance by addressing the problem this way. What do I have to do with you? And he says this, that my hour has not yet come. What he's doing is he's distancing from Mary from what she wants and what his priorities are and specifically who he is responsible to. 
And although it's not a big theme in the gospel of John, we understand Jesus is going now to begin his ministry and he's about his father's will. He's not gonna be about Mary's will and he's keeping those separate. That my hour, and that phrase is used over and over in the gospel of John and other gospels to refer to the time of his crucifixion. And there are a few things going on here where depending on the nature of the miracle and the publicity of all those things, that he's saying, I'm not ready yet to go to the cross. One of the reasons you're going to see outside of festivals, he stays away from Jerusalem. So he's respectful, but he's saying, Mother, uh, Mary has a maternal authority, but it does not extend into his messianic ministry. This phrase, what do I have to do with you? It's used five other times. And every single time that it's used, the other five is coming out of the mouths of demons. I find that interesting. But really the point is when the demons respond to Jesus, they're saying, what do you have to do with us? And they actually even refer to this idea of time. For example, example, Matthew 8, 29, and behold, they cried out saying, talking of the demons, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What Jesus is saying here with this phrase is saying there is a distancing and there is a, Mary, you're not, you don't have the authority to press into this area. Jesus is an obedient son, but he's an obedient son not to Mary, but ultimately to a higher authority than his earthly mother. That is to his heavenly father because he is the son of his heavenly father. He's the son of God. And I think this statement here makes it very clear from the beginning that there is going to be no familial kind of advantages in his ministry. And you're going to see that here in a moment throughout his ministry. It kind of comes up over and over in different places in different gospels. That is to say, you're not going to get to Jesus in any special way through his family. Even his mother is going to have to come to him as a disciple. It's going to be about grace and faith and not your pedigree. We've talked about this before and the big idea of, uh, of the world throughout the gospel of John. It's not just for the Jew. It's not even just for Jesus' family. Everyone is going to come by one means, and that's through faith, believing in his work on the cross and his resurrection. It's by faith, not by family. A couple of places just to highlight this, where you see this idea played out even more through different gospels. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, this is talking of Jesus, behold, his mother, his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And now someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And in a similar way, his answer is a, not disrespectful, but it is a distancing. And he answers in verse 48 to the one who was telling him and said, who is my, bro- my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, or behold, to those that he's looking at, his disciples, behold, my brother, my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of my father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. And in Mark chapter three, very similarly, when verse 31, then his mother and his brothers arrived standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. The crowd was sitting around and they said to him, behold, your mother, brothers are outside looking for you. And he answers, who are my mother and my brothers? And behold, look, you are my mother's, my mother, brother, sister, and mother. 
The implication of this is that there is no Christian pedigree for good or bad, no matter who your parents are, whether Jewish or not, whether good or bad, whether rich or poor, there are no spiritual advantages. You are equal at the cross. I think it's even worth noting here that within Catholicism, and you see kind of that idolatry that goes towards Mary, that she can bend Jesus's ear and where you see clearly in biblical terms and clarity here that that's not true. She's not able to do that. It's not to say that she's not special. It's not even to say here that I think she's gonna respond in faith, but there's only one way that you go to Christ and it's through belief in him. Not by faith, but, or by faith, not by family. In fact, notice Mary's final words in verse five. I thought this is interesting just to look at this, that her response, because you see her approach Jesus with kind of the authority of a mother. Solve my problem. But her response is the true response of a disciple and the response that you and I should have. What would you respond if thinking of the mothers here? Maybe even fathers, if your son would say to you, what do I have to do with you? My time's not yet come. There's trust that she says, I trust that if he's gonna do something, he'll do it. And if he's not gonna do something, then he's not gonna do something. And her response seems to be open and one of discipleship and one of belief that she simply says in verse five, whatever he says to you, do it. I see an open-handedness in that. A trust that if he decides this is the time to begin his ministry, go ahead. If it's not, that's okay. He'll decide because it's his timetable. He's the one in control. And you see that transition of that motherly authority giving way to this relationship changing to one of discipleship and belief. And so we see the problem though of the narrative is that there is no more wine. That's what sets up this miracle as we're going to see in verse six. And so we see the problem. And then secondly, we're gonna see the provision. And that is Jesus is going to provide this miracle for this wedding. And his mother, after saying, to them, do whatever he says. Verse six goes on and explains what happens. What he does is he tells them that they're gonna take these six stone jars. It says, now there were six stone jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two or three measures each. And Jesus is gonna to say to them, fill the water jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And then he's gonna say, draw some of, out, some of it out now, take it to the head waiter, and they are going to take it to the waiter. And when the head waiter, as we've read earlier, gets it, he is going to be amazed. And he's going to say, this is not just wine, which of course it was water, right? We saw that. It's turned into wine, but it is, he's saying, the best wine. I think there's going to be some, something symbolic about that, that was saved for the last. But these stone ceremonial jars, back to verse six, we're going to see, are large. These are not small Jars, like you think, oh, little jars that you could pick up. No, these are large ceremonial jars, 20 plus gallons. There's six of them. This is a big party and it is a lot of water that's turned into a lot of wine filled to the brim. But what's going on here is this transformation. I think this is of note back to chapter one. This is a miracle uniquely of creation, something that is not and changing its characteristic. You think of the process of making wine, it is a long process. It's very slow. It can take 
full three years to get from the initial planting of a brand new grapevine through the first harvest. And the, the first really vintage might not be bottled for another two years after that. And Jesus says, fill it with water and then draw out of that. And it is new wine that tastes better than anything they've had before, which typically in that culture would be something that is aged longer. This is a miracle of creation. This is his copyright. This is him saying, and this is him putting out, if you're wondering, is he the son of God? Well, who can take something and change its very nature? We're gonna see in a moment too, the context of not just this, but the cleansing of the temple, Nicodemus. There's a flow in this whole section of something that is new and something that must be transformed. The water is transformed. How do you do that? You can't do that. We're gonna get there soon. John chapter three. You must be born again. And Dick Demas asks a good question. That's not possible. How can you go back in your mother's? That's, that's, that's not how it works. You just can't transform. Well, it works for one. Yes, impossible with man, but not impossible with God. And so he provides this miracle. And we're gonna see it's not only a sign of miraculous nature, but it's also gonna point towards him being the son of God. And I think some things about what is going to come in his ministry. Now, I think as a note, as I read a lot of different commentaries and different things, what is going on here is not a condoning of drunkenness. So the Bible speaks about alcohol uh, in a similar way that it speaks about money, which is to say it talks a lot about it, but just little bits here and there and everywhere. But it talks a lot about it. And so I think it's worthy of pulling the car over and having a moment to say, what is this saying? Well, we know from the rest of scripture that it is a sin to be drunk. In fact, for the believer, it's very clear, right? Don't be Drunk with wine, rather be filled with the Spirit. This kind of wine here, it's true, would be different than what we drink today. That is to say, it's very much watered down. It's still alcoholic, but it is to say, three parts to water, four parts to water to wine. I thought it was interesting just reading a little bit of the way that they do that. And the reason, I always, I guess, was under the perception in many ways that it was simply for killing bacteria, which I guess in part it was. But you would have both because water that sits out, I don't know if you guys have ever done that, you've had water sit in a car for a few days and then you drink the water. Stagnant water is not very good. And the same is true of, for them, with stagnant wine. It's not good. And so they would mix one basically to make both better. And so they would do that because even there, there's some written uh, of kind of the, the Greco culture that they would find cold springs because you don't have a refrigerator. How do you make that thing colder? You take cold water and you pour it into warm stagnant wine and it makes it better. But it's also even noticed in the Greco culture, uh, Greco-Roman culture, that culturally they thought only barbarians were the ones who would drink unmixed wine. And I tried to find if that's because it's so disgusting in sense of stagnant, or it's also seemingly implied that it would be unsocialized, uncivilized to do that. Because obviously you're going to take a very high content of alcohol and you're going to get drunk very, very fast. And so there's even in that culture, what is right and what is wrong is, is there. And so I just think as we look towards that, I appreciate one of the commentators thinking through alcohol and thinking through drunkenness, which is clearly a sin, but how do we approach the idea of alcohol? And he says this, this is from Carl Laney, that every Christian must make a decision whether to use or to avoid alcoholic beverages. There's no proof text for total abstinence, nor is there any text advocating social drinking, which is gonna leave us right into biblical principles. And one must be guided by one's conscience and by principles of the word. This is an issue where consciences may differ 
and the application of the scriptural principles may vary depending on the situation at hand. I say this pastorally because obviously this is a big issue and it seems like something worthy of pulling the car over and having a discussion about. And a reminder that it isn't something that should be done lightly. It is an issue in the culture. Obviously you have things, drunk driving and all the rest. There are challenges in our society. I think it's encouraging that you understand as Christians, you should be setting an example, whether in abstinence or in moderation. And depending on the choice that you make in those two kind of categories, it's wise to avoid against pride saying, well, it doesn't bother me and be prideful in that way. Or if you are one who says, I never drink and abstain, to be careful as well. That that idea of maybe it will make you more spiritual. The idea of Colossians get after asceticism, doing these things that don't taste, don't touch. And both are kind of falling off, I think, into the ditch. And so I just would say, be wise and be examples as Laney put, whether in abstinence or in moderation. But what Jesus is doing here, again, is, is very cultural and very appropriate. And they are going to be very thankful that he does it. I think that's important to note, as well as acknowledge the rest of Scripture and a lot of caution throughout, especially you think of Proverbs with these things. But what overall does this represent? What, what is the bigger picture of Jesus not only being the Son of God, but also the nature of the miracle? Well, I think we got to look at, as I said, the larger context of What's going from 2-1 all the way to the end of chapter 4? And if you even look at a glance with me, what comes after verse 13 and forward is Jesus is going to cleanse the temple, right? It's something that is bad and he is going to make good by cleansing and getting rid of it. Even you see the cleansing of what kind of jars were used. They were purification jars. You're going to see this idea of being born again, that you need to be a new creature. As Paul would say, a, a new creature, the old is gone, the new has come. Think of chapter four, the Samaritan woman who's offered living water at the well. And John, there are often things represented by, things are representative of something more than maybe at first appearance, whether it's living water or bread of life. This is the first miracle. I think you can draw some understanding of the entirety of Jesus's ministry from the broader section of what is this building towards about Jesus. What is it telling us about not only him, but the beginning of his messianic ministry? They point to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old is gone, the new has come. Again, one commentator notes this. I thought it was so helpful, worth even quoting, which is that the three chapters he's talking about, two through the end of four, represent the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God, the old temple by the new and the risen Lord, an exposition of new birth for new creation, a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and living water from Christ and the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with worship in spirit and truth. There is going to be this contrast that we're going to see the old and the new that when Jesus comes, this is something new. And that's why I, I opened by looking towards, we're going to see the signs that show Jesus is God through his power of creation. And it represents the beginning of a new era in God's program. This is a new era. When we look towards communion today, it is that his blood begins a new covenant that's shed for us. So yes, practically speaking, Jesus solves the problem. 
He provides wine. He saves the, the couple, the groom, especially from embarrassment and from shame. He blesses his mother. But he is also demonstrating that he transforms something that is water into something that is better or more valuable. And he does so, as we'll see here, abundantly and full. They filled it all the way to the brim. Some have noted that the old purification laws, as it were, must give away to something better. You're not going to put new wine in old wine skins. God provides freely through Christ. He forgives lavishly, we'll see, in his son. And for those who put, his, put their faith and their trust in him, he's going to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. You don't need to go back to the old law. You don't need to go back to Jewish law, old purification laws. No, you have something better in Christ. And John is masterful at this point in accomplishing his purpose of showing you that he is the son of God. And also in what ways will he look towards purifying you? And it's not towards simply performing a miracle of creation, but it's going to be, as we're going to see in verse 11, that it is this push towards belief. And so he's taking something that, again, they would expect. Look at verse 10. Every man serves the good wine first. That's what they expect. And people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Very much you go, oh, we have had what we thought was good. God has revealed himself to Israel. God has revealed himself in his word. And yet the best has been saved for last in him revealing his son. Think of Hebrews chapter one. In days of old, long ago, God spoke through his prophets. But now he speaks through his son. And this is the beginning of that ministry and pushing forward. And so yes, he provides, but even more he's saying and going to foreshadow that he was going to provide cleansing that'll come through his death and resurrection. Well, lastly, you're going to see it tied into the purpose, the clear purpose that we see here of John's gospel, verse 11. So the, the problem, the provision, and lastly here, the purpose. That Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs. So he's not done yet. He's just getting started. But notice what his signs are pointing to. They're, they're pointing to this manifestation of his glory. That is their signs, their symbols, they are arrows pointing to Jesus isn't like you and me. He's not like any other man that has ever lived. His glory is reflected because it is God's glory. Chapter one, he is the source. It's not to say there, there's a quote unquote, I maybe I'll think of like capital G, lower G. Not to say there's nothing good about man, the glory of man. But if there is anything about the glory of man, it's a reflection of our creator. Jesus's glory, as we saw in chapter one, is unique. He is the source. And that is being manifested by this sign. And it's going to be all of the coming signs. And look at the response of his disciples. His disciples do what? They believe in him. Well, isn't that the point? He's not done yet though, because we, he's got to fill out what, he's got to build that term. We talked about in the first week of we looked at the gospel of John, that belief in this book kind of moves progressive, that there is such thing as superficial belief. That is belief that, okay, Jesus is a good person or Jesus is a historical person. Jesus is somebody who I respect but that isn't what he wants as you come to, you know, we get to the end of this book. He's moving towards, he is more than that. You want to see his glory and it's going to be revealed not just in a miracle at Canaan, but it's going to be revealed when his time does come, when his hour does come in verse three. 
And he's going to be revealed in his greatest measure on the cross, in his resurrection, in his exaltation. And every step of the way is going to push forward as we see more and more of the glory of Christ. Kind of imagine if you've ever had binoculars or um, if you ever played with a projector, like a projector up here, and you can kind of take that focus and you kind of notch it, right? This is the beginning. And so it's a little blurry. But over the course of the rest of the gospel, John's going to start clarifying to where you get to the end and it's going to be crystal clear what and who, what Jesus is going to do and who Jesus is. The glory, it would seem though, is not visible to everyone there because there's some hidden, right? The servants, they knew where they got it. It would seem they didn't tell everyone. But the disciples and Mary and the servants, they know, they saw the sign you could even say maybe, because we don't know quite where the servants are at, maybe they saw the sign, but not the glory. But we do know the disciples, they both saw the sign and they saw the manifestation of glory behind their, the sign and they put their faith in Christ. Well, he stamps his copyright on creation, on who he is by demonstrating he has the power over creation and representing that he's not only going to create something as for him, simple as wine into water, but his point is pushing to chapter three. He can make you a new creation in Christ. As you look at these first 11 verses, hopefully you understand the goal of this is exposure. Exposure to Christ and exposure to his glory. And if you believe in Christ this morning and, and therefore one who should partake in the Lord's table together, then the proper response is worship. Where we are reminded of who Christ is, even by this. And then of course, what is it pointing to? Who he is, the son of God, and what he has done for us in his death and his resurrection. Reminded as we'll look towards the table of his blood, inaugurating a new covenant that is a new way to live related to God. That relationship with him. And the only way in which, because God is perfect and holy and he is a judge, how do we approach him? It's only going to be through Christ because you can't boldly approach, as Hebrews says, the throne of grace by yourself or in your sin. You got to go through the ultimate mediator through Christ so that God sees Christ. Not you, not your sin, but sees the perfection of of Christ. And then you can boldly approach the throne of grace because of Jesus' perfect and final sacrifice. And so the need of these purification jars are going to be null and void because you're purified spiritually in Christ. I'm prayer that as we look at this, we, we see Christ clearly and we are moved along in our understanding that we are called to respond in belief and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, even now as we come to your table, we think of your truths. We think of that you are holy and you are just, but in love, Christ came. He became a perfect man to bear our blame, our sin, our shame. That on the cross, he took our sin. And that by his death and his resurrection, we can die to sin but not remain, but be raised to life, 
new life, abundant life, as we'll see even later in this gospel. Remind us of these truths as we sing and as we prepare our hearts to partake of these elements. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.